Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Royal Retros, the king of throwbacks. Hey, if you're looking for teams and leagues that don't exist anymore, but you'd like to remember them in high quality jersey or uniform format. Hey, some of those teams were legendary. Some of them were disasters, but they all live at Royal Retros. Check them out. RoyalRetros.com. Use that promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Check them out now. And now, check out this episode. Hi, what a pleasure this is, I'll tell you. I'm Jack Brickhouse. This handsome fellow is Milo Hamilton. We're at Sec Taylor Stadium in Des Moines. I might add, one of the great sports cities in the entire Midwest. The history of this city is just absolutely spectacular. And I better say it that way because I'm surrounded by nothing but people from Iowa. Jack Schultz from the crew, Milo Hamilton from here, I, Arnie Harris who went to school over here. I'm in serious trouble if I don't plug this place. <laughs> well, and we've had a long history out here, the Cub organization. They were here right. many years ago. They've returned now with the Iowa Oaks, the AAA ball club. We're going to see a good Wichita club here, leading hitter in the league. We're going to see a couple people who've been in the big leagues and are trying to battle their way back. So we should have an interesting game. If the weather will cooperate, Jack, that poured here last night, rained out a doubleheader. They're going to play another game after we finish this one night. If that's not enough, Iowa's got a doubleheader here tomorrow night. So they're playing it fast and heavy in Des Moines. And they play a lot of baseball here. They play a 136-game schedule. More about all that later on. We're going to have Roy Hartsfield and Rich Donnelly, the two managers, give the batting orders for their ball clubs before the ball game begins here in a little while. But we just want to say, welcome to baseball. Now, the last time we talked to you, the Cubs had just won five out of six. The farm club of the Chicago Cubs here in the American Association. And, of course, uh, coincidentally, not too long ago, Wichita was the Cub farm club, but the Cubs left Wichita. Wichita now has the deal with the Texas Rangers. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, this is a fine kettle of fish we find ourselves in. How are you, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. As announced by the great Corey Coates, it's good seats still available. Also announced by the great Corey Coates, our uh, little journey each and every week, or mostly every week, into what used to be in professional sports. I appreciate you finding us. And thank you for downloading us, putting us in your earbuds, doing whatever you do to ingest this little program uh, this week. And this week, we are going uh, into hot stove mode uh, as we anticipate, hopefully, baseball coming up. Uh, hopefully, it's going to come. And uh, hopefully, uh, in spring uh, with it. And um, we are, uh, uh, if nothing but uh, attempting completism with this show. And this is a great episode example of such. As we welcome to our microphones this week, Steve Dunn, uh, who now resides in Des Moines, Iowa, longtime newspaper writer, sports reporter, back in the day when Newspapers actually uh, existed uh, legitimately, uh, not the sort of the thin gruel that they have uh, sadly become. And um, we are going to circle the wagons around the great city of Des Moines, Iowa, and get into a litany of teams that uh, made baseball happen in that great city, as you'll find out in our conversation coming up. Uh, lots of interesting teams in history. Uh, all of them in the uh, realms of the minor leagues, of course, and and that clip uh, kind of sets the tone, but rather uniquely. So let me set it up for you sec- for a second before we get into the uh, uh, the, the the meat of the matter. Um, that was uh, a uh, broadcast from uh, WGN Television in Chicago at the time in 1981, August the first, 1981. 
It was essentially uh, what was emerging around that time in cable television, uh, the still relatively early days of tele- cable television, uh, the Superstation model, uh, WTBS, obviously with Ted Turner in Atlanta was one, WSBK in Boston uh, was another. You saw uh, Red Sox games from that, the uh, Braves obviously with the Atlanta uh, version of that, WWOR uh, with the extra W there, uh, was uh, carrying Mets games uh, around the country. And clearly WGM was uh, was one of those super stations. Um, so uh, interesting factoid number two, uh, if you uh, noted that date, uh, we were just near the end of what had been a relatively uh, impactful workers workers uh, strike, a major league baseball strike. Uh, whether the owners were locking them out or the players were going on strike, it, it depends on who you were talking to in the in the uh, in the process. But um, you heard the great uh, Cub announcer voices uh, of Jack Brickhouse and Milo Hamilton um, g- calling uh, his game from Sec Taylor Stadium in Des Moines. Uh, for a team known as the Iowa Oaks, uh, which has uh, evolved now into the Iowa Cubs. This was the first year, 1981, that the uh, AAA Iowa Oaks uh, were uh, uh, aligned, affiliated officially with the Chicago Cubs. So the Cubs had uh, a previous affiliation um, with another Des Moines uh, club, uh, for about 10 years prior, 1947 and 1957, uh, that was a team that we're going to talk about called the Des Moines Bruins. Uh, then it was a uh, they left for a while that affiliation and then uh, ultimately came back in 1981. And since that time, uh, with the name change and all now to the Iowa Cubs, uh, the uh, uh, if you will, the premier triple A relationship uh, with the Chicago Cubs, uh, many a Cub great has uh, either come up through that franchise or has rehabilitated uh, through that franchise and and the like. Um, Just uh, one, actually two, the um, Iowa Oaks and the uh, Des Moines Bruins of the teams that we're going to get into in our conversation. But let me wrap up this clip thing here. This was, uh, I believe, after a few months of being off, literally, WGN and any uh, devoid of any baseball, uh, this was the first time, I think, frankly, uh, until the uh, the strike was ended, I think the next day, uh, August 2nd of 81, uh, that uh, Messrs. Brickhouse and Hamilton were um, just getting a few more reps out there to kind of get get back in the swing of things, literally, uh, as the uh, Major League Baseball season was going to come back online. Uh, as we know, a second uh, split season uh, kind of approach. Uh, but this was the broadcast. And what a wonderful way for the Cubs organization to uh, welcome its uh, first year relationship with the then um, Iowa Oaks and uh, also, you know, get some baseball to the uh, the legions of fans, not only in the Chicago area, but across the country on the superstation kind of approach that WGN was doing at that point. Anyway, I thought a wonderful introduction to the topic at hand and some really interesting teams uh, that we're going to talk about with Steve uh, done in a few minutes. Um, the, the Demons uh, of Des Moines were one of those teams. Um, the All Nations Club, which was, uh, for all intents and purposes, a barnstorming uh, team uh, in and around and from the Negro Leagues. So a lot of Negro League history uh, that's involved in there. And an interesting uh, franchise that was uh, pretty much on the scene for much of Des Moines' uh, first 
um, I guess half century of the uh, the 20th century, the 1900s, uh, was a club named the Des Moines Boosters. And um, it's interesting because that team uh, essentially in the early part of the decade, excuse me, early part of the century, the 19, starting in 1900, uh, in the Western League, that was Class A ball at that time, uh, seemingly almost changed its name every season. So we're going to knock out a whole bunch of interesting names, some of the most interesting names in baseball history. Uh, the Des Moines Haw- Hawkeyes uh, became the Detroit, excuse me, Detroit. Can you imagine? The Des Moines Midgets. Uh, the year in 1903, they became the Undertakers. We'll find out why. Uh, and that only lasted a year because they became the Des Moines Prohibitionists in 1904. Then they were uh, reverted or became the Underwriters in 1905. And, and nicknames like the Champions and the Champs and the Boosters and all kinds of different crazy names and stuff. We're going to knock out as many of these as we can. Uh, and it's all part of our celebration of the history of minor league baseball in Des Moines. And uh, Steve Dunn is our guest this week, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment's time. Uh, but first, a quick plug for his book that uh, gave us the excuse to have this conversation. It is called Pug Fireball and Company, 116, count them, years of professional baseball in Des Moines, Iowa. It is available wherever you can find good books. And of course, you can find it uh, from our website, and we encourage you to do so at Good Seats Still Available. Dot com. Just search up this episode. It is numbered 335. My goodness. And there will be a few convenient links there for you to get uh, said copy of said book uh, through our Amazon affiliate link. And we appreciate when you buy it that way. Of course, you can go to your down the street to your local independent bookseller or buy it anywhere else you'd like. Uh, but we encourage you to uh, go through our little link. Could we get a couple of uh, of pennies and nickels and, and an occasional dime or two of referral love? And we appreciate that because that's the uh, only way we uh, keep our lights on and stuff. Uh, and uh, it's the only way we kind of shake you down uh, on this show. So we appreciate you doing that. And uh, I know Steve will, too, because he'll sell another book. And hey, by the way, uh, if you happen to be listening to this episode in real time, that is when we drop this episode, I believe it's on the 5th of February. Uh, and you happen to be in the Des Moines area in the next week or two, on February 17th, you can uh, meet and greet Steve Dunn, author of said book, Pug Fireball and Company, and get a signed copy, for goodness sakes, at the Barnes & Noble in West Des Moines at the Jordan Creek Town Center. Uh, He'll be there from 4 to 6 p.m., so mark it on your calendar. Get yourself to Des Moines, West Des Moines uh, in particular, at the uh, Jordan Center Creek Town Center. Excuse me, the Jordan Creek Town Center. That's right. Barnes and Noble on the 17th of February at 4 p.m., 4 to 6 p.m. And get yourself a purchase yourself and get yourself a signed copy of Pug Fireball and Company. But before you do that, sit back uh, and enjoy this conversation we have with Steve. Let's talk about some Des Moines baseball. Let's knock out a few names from our list of, um, of franchises in our quest for completism. Uh, As always, we encourage you to please enjoy. Why don't you give our uh, our vast audience uh, a bit of a a background on you professionally, personally, and maybe your sort of your adjunct into the story of baseball uh, in Des Moines? What's your uh, connection to it and why the uh, passion behind it? Well, I, I worked in the newspaper business on the editorial side for about four decades as a 
general assignment reporter, sports writer, and a managing editor of weekly and dailies, the last daily in Keokuk, Iowa. Then my wife and I moved up to Des Moines in 2014 because we had two daughters up here and three, uh, two grandchildren at the time. Now we have four grandchildren. The one daughter's moved to Phoenix, one is still in this area, and four grandchildren. I've always loved baseball. Um, I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, about 30 miles west of Chicago. So that's where I got my start with baseball. My dad would take me to Cub games or Wrigley Field back in the 50s when I had some bad teams. But Ernie Banks, of course, was just getting started then. He was my hero. He still is. He's still my all-time favorite baseball player. I met his son, Joey, playing fantasy baseball out in Arizona in 2018-2019. That was very interesting because <laughs> uh, Joey was playing shortstop just like his dad did at the number 14. So I've seen I've seen major league games in Wrigley Field, Old Comiskey Park in Chicago. I've seen baseball games in two stadiums in Cleveland two stadiums in Cincinnati, two stadiums in Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, St. Louis, minor league games in Omaha. I'm from Southwest Iowa, so my dad and my paternal grandfather would take me to minor league games in Omaha. Also seen them, of course, here in Des Moines, Peoria, Illinois, and Akron, Ohio, believe it or not. So, so, uh, so you're, you're, you're dyed in the wool, a couple of generations yeah. of stadiums and, and, and on, yeah. on all levels oh, yeah. of a pro, both the, the top tier, as well as the, the minors clearly, uh, with, a, yeah. a, I guess living in Iowa, that is, that's just, that's part of the deal, right? That the Cubs in particular, right. With the Iowa yes. Cubs, obviously being the main, um, uh, triple a franchise and the fact that it's also probably the heart and soul, if you will, of of minor league baseball in Iowa and the central part of the country. Definitely. Uh, they've been the, they've been the triple A affiliate of the Chicago Cubs since 1981. <clears throat> so there's a long history here. There are what, two other minor league teams, but they're class A in Iowa and uh, Cedar Rapids and uh, the Quad Cities. They used to have minor league teams in Burlington and Clinton, but those got up. Axed when the minor leagues reorganized back what, 2021 in that time period. So there's only three left, and of course, Des Moines Triple A. Yes, I was at, I was actually at a Burlington Burlington Bees. Is it? Was it? Yeah, Burlington. Yeah, I was Bees. at one of those games a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, I guess. Uh, and um, yeah, it was is a quite an intimate kind of thing. But uh, yes, yeah. sadly, I mean, Major League Baseball has done what it has with minor league baseball. Yeah. Yeah. But the Iowa Cubs are still going strong. Uh, of course, a couple of years ago, they got new owners, and now it's owned by a big conglomerate out of California, which owns a boatload of other minor league teams. They own, I think they own all the Atlanta Braves minor league teams. So it's it's not a family-run uh, operation anymore. I don't know if that's good or bad, but, yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk we'll talk about that. I'd love to get your uh, opinion about that uh, in a little while. But uh, bef- before we kind of get into the Des Moines and baseball story, uh, I, I got to unpack a little bit about your 
your honest to goodness journalism career. I mean, God bless, right? I mean, I, as somebody who went to college with the thought of being a journalist himself and had a couple of dalliances with some some print journalism, the old Sports Illustrated, which is sadly hobbling and and maybe fa- falling yeah. uh, to, away forever, and and broadcast TV journalism stuff. Um, uh, g- w- give me a sense of your uh your newspaper journey what 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 places were you at and how much was sports reporting part of your uh part of your endeavors? i went to college at bradley in peoria so uh they had a decent journalism school for a college that size i started out in morton illinois at weekly outside of peoria uh champaign illinois in a daily there and i was a sports writer there and I actually did kind of do sidebars in the Big Ten basketball football games. Unfortunately, back then, Illinois wasn't very good in either one. So. But I usually did the opposing side. So I got to, you know, hear Bobby Knight talk and Woody Hayes and all those guys from the Big Ten back in that era. And I was also worked at uh, a smaller daily south of here in Iowa, Keokuk, Iowa Daily. A lot of people ask me if I've ever worked for the Des Moines Register, of course. I say no, uh, nothing that big, but the Register is just a shell of its former self. As is the entire industry, sadly. All right, really? so let, give, give, me, give me a sense, though, then, of the story that you're kind of focused on with this book. I mean, Des Moines and baseball, right? I mean, number one, right. on one level, right, it's it's a, a you know, a, a midsize city in the Midwest, right? So clearly minor league baseball, as in a lot of uh, towns slash cities of that size, clearly expected uh, in that story. But it's also interesting, too, that especially the further back you go, you know, you remember people forget that the earliest days of of the sport, when it was becoming uh, this rascally uh, <laughs> professional game in the late 1800s, right? A city like Des Moines was just as major league or could have been considered as such as, you know, just about any sort of metropolis uh, in the Northeast and or the Midwest. So in many respects, call it minor league, call it major league or whatever. I mean, those early days, right. You know, a a city, a town like Des Moines um, had its fair share of baseball and, and, and who's, who was to divine, frankly, what was major or minor at that point, I guess, if you really think about it. Yeah, um, Des Moines, of course, the sport really picked up after the Civil War. So Des Moines had one baseball club, wasn't professional, but a baseball club one year after the Civil War. The next year they had nine baseball clubs, amateur, but baseball clubs. So then the, the first team, the Hawkeyes, got started in 1887. So Des Moines had baseball off and on professionally since 1887. A lot, a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, not to be not unexpected, but uh, it is kind of uh, eyebrow raising. I think people of a, at least a couple of generations certainly don't sort of realize just how um, how many fits and starts really. You know, the the, the whole birthing of of professional baseball. I mean, and and you know, we've we've talked on on many occasions about simply how uh roguish uh that that was it wasn't sort of the noble pursuit i guess that we and were nor lucrative per se it was very much a 
scoundrel-filled uh, uh, endeavor, right? Uh, being a professional baseball player was, I don't know, not high in the list of uh, of uh, good, upstanding American boy uh, uh, careers to choose from at that time. But that didn't stop a whole generation of players from um, uh, taking a shot, if you will, at it. And, and in many cases, not all, having a pretty good time while they were doing it, no matter what people thought. Yeah, so yeah, I run across guys who played early years. They would play 15, 20 years in the minor leagues. And nobody would do that now, but back then they just played it because they loved baseball, I guess. And though they didn't get paid a whole lot, I'm sure they had to have off-season jobs. But uh, yeah, some of those early guys, they played a long time in the, the minor leagues. They didn't care, I guess, if they ever got to the majors. It's amazing. Well, give me a sense. Though, tell me about some of these uh, these early teams besides uh, the Hawkeyes. So I think it's probably helpful to talk about what league we're talking about at the turn of that century. It was a thing called the Western League. Now, yeah, that's, well, that's a label one. that's come and gone on lots of different things and stuff. But do you want to describe what this Western League was around 1900? And then we can get into some of the uh, exhibits A and B of, of what Des Moines was doing in that Western League. I'm going to kind of cheat here. Look at my book. Oh, uh, you're going to cheat. Okay, I get it. Yeah, okay. So this new Western League, it was Class B. It was formed uh, February 12th, 1900 in Des Moines at a hotel in Des Moines. So they had uh, the other teams were Denver. Yes, Des Moines actually was in a league with Denver. Omaha, Pueblo, Colorado. St. Joseph, Missouri, and Sioux City, Iowa. There are eight other cities that sought admission to the league, but they wanted to keep it to six. Among those other eight were places like um, Cedar Rapids, Colorado Springs, Dubuque, Peoria, Rockford, Rock Island, Topeka, Kansas. So in March of that year, they started building a new ball field, which is would be like downtown, right in the center of downtown now. They made about $3,500 worth of improvements to it. So, uh, and I, I looked up, uh, there's a magazine, there's a publication called Persinger's Saturday Times, and uh, they described all the ball players. They had pictures of them. They described each player as kind of rather amusing to, read their descriptions of the players but it's also it's also interesting though that uh and as i've done my research as well as uh, uh in reading uh your uh layout of, of the various teams in des moines um tell me if i have this right it it looks and i don't know if this is just historical convenience uh or reference uh uh you know cheating if you will but it looks like from 1900 almost unimpeded until at least 1937, there was a team in the Western League in Des Moines uh, that was, for all intents and purposes, the same club, but def it changed, shed its skin and changed its name a whole oh, bunch yeah. of times. So number one, yeah. is that true? And then number two, oh, yes. are all these yes. different names and teams, are these different teams or are this literally the same team just sort of morphing into different expressions of themselves the same team but they underwent several name changes um like the newspapers here would conduct a contest 
uh, to name the team. So they had, they had, they underwent several name changes like, uh, politicians, prohibitionists. I have a cap prohibitionist cap now. Uh, undertakers. They call the team the undertakers a couple of years because the manager, that's what he did in his off season for employment. He was worked at a funeral home. So they call the team the undertakers. They probably wouldn't do that now. They were known as the champions at one point. Um, but they were always in the Western League. Um, so I'm curious as to what you learn about sort of these names and stuff. So the Undertakers, I get the Prohibitionists, though, the, the Underwriters. Uh, they, were called the mid, they were called the Midgets in 1902, yes. to be firmly politically incorrect. Um, right. I, I just and, and then the Boosters, I guess, was sort of their name yes. from 1908 until 1924, which yes. at least was consistent. <laughs> um, I'm just curious as to maybe why these name changes all the time. Well, let me ask you this question. I, and I, I have asked this question of other students of the game around this era uh, as it was becoming professional and, and, and sort of solidifying that there was this temptation, especially in big cities for sports writers to um, unofficially nickname these clubs because maybe they didn't even have a nickname per se, or they just exhibited certain, um, I don't know, certain identities to them. And, and, and the nicknames sometimes stuck or were informal and not really the official names, but maybe there's some, there's some answer in, the, in that sort of questioning. Do you think? I don't know that the newspaper uh, sports writers named them. Uh, I think the clubs just renamed themselves or in this one case in 1904, they actually had a three-day newspaper contest sponsored by the Des Moines paper from April 7th to April 9th, and a Rock Island Railroad clerk, Roy Brown of Des Moines, was the first person to submit the winning name, and he got a $5 gold piece. And that was called the uh, Politicians. But get this, more than 250 names were suggested. So the team could have been called the uh, Grafters, the Hard-Boiled Eggs, Aristocrats, Resurrectionists, Harvesters, Plowboys. So there were a lot of other possibilities. They could have been the Des Moines Plowboys. Who knows? Or Hard-Boiled Eggs. But, but they decided to name, take this guy's suggestion and name of politicians because, of course, this is the state capital. The midget's name because... The fans thought the the players were so inferior that they played like midgets. They were less than professional quality, <laughs> so they called them midgets. <laughs> I, I I'm also curious as to why they changed their name so darn much, especially in the ninth in the nineteen in the in the, the first decade. Uh, any indication as to why? I mean, it it didn't seem like there was finances attached to it, like like sponsors and no, stuff. Maybe there was. No. I think people just got tired of that name. Let's, let's get a better but, name. But every year? <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, I guess it's crazy today. Maybe it made oh, sense then, but... But the team, back then, the teams were not affiliated with any major league club. So it's easier to change the, the name of the team, I think. Des Moines never became an affiliate of a major league club until 1938 when they were an affiliate of the Washington Senators. 
So before that, they're always an independent club. And of course, those clubs try to sell their best players to the major leagues to make money. So, so do you think it was a lack of professionalism that they were changing their names all the time, or just because, or or, or a, a, an indication of perhaps of of the, if you will, the lack of leadership, or you just think it was just a novelty that, I mean, I I do know right they did win the league championship in 1905 and in 1906. Yeah. So I guess the champions. Yeah, the they champions one champions year and they call the champs the next year, right? right. I, I get that, but right, right, right. Yeah. But the underwriters, uh, the undertakers, not so much. Uh, of course, the underwriters, because the, this is the insurance capital of the Midwest. Uh, Des Moines and Hartford uh, are probably the biggest insurance cities in the country, so that's where you get the underwriters from. No, I just think uh, a lot of the Early minor league teams, they did change names, not probably as often as Des Moines did, but so maybe that's just unique to Des Moines. But <laughs> they've undergone a lot of na- different names over the years for whatever reason. Okay, how, how about the, the, they did settle on, on in 1908 for a, a good 10, 15 years. Uh, the name Boosters. Any any inc- any understanding as to why Boosters? became the one that stuck for such a period of time. No, I've never tracked that down. I guess they just, they liked the name well enough. They didn't think it needed to be changed. Maybe just civic pride. Uh, Baseball in the early days was a very civic uh, endeavor. On opening day, they would have parades before the game. They'd have a big luncheon. You know, the whole community could go to the luncheon, go to the parade before the game. Uh, They'd have a banquet after the game. It's quite a big deal. I, they don't do that anymore. I guess I should suggest that to Iowa Cubs in the city. Let's have a parade before on opening day. How about the ballparks? Uh, I know around 1912, this uh, Western League Park became kind of the place where the games were played. But there, there were a number of other sort of locations around Des Moines where they were played, right? Again, not too dissimilar from... Yeah. Uh, other cities out there, right? But uh, maybe a little background as to how and where these games were played. Uh, any sense of how fans enjoyed the experiences or, you know, were they ragtag? Were they pretty decent? What, what was the Western League Park like? Any any knowledge there? The first one was uh, Southwest 7th Street, which is only about five blocks away from the current ballpark at the confluence of the Des Moines and Raccoon Rivers in Des Moines, and actually that's where the city more or less started. There was a Fort Des Moines here originally before the city was actually incorporated, so they had this fort at the confluence of the rivers. That's where Des Moines started. And that's where Principal Park is now, where the minor league team plays. But the first ballpark was Athletic Park. I'm sure it was a wooden structure. Um... You know, admission was like 25 cents a game. Um, first time for a minor league park, I'm sure it was okay. But uh, then in the 1900, they moved to a place downtown. But uh, they lost that in urban de- redevelopment. So, well, yeah, the Western League Park in 1912, it's out on the north side of town. Uh, we got North High School out there. That's where the North High School is, so a little east of the Des Moines River. Yeah, that's Des Moines. Um, 
And of course, you know, that was a site of several um, big, big events in Des Moines baseball history at that Western League Park before it was finally torn down. And Des Moines didn't have professional baseball from like 39 to 47. They didn't have professional baseball during the war years. And then it came back in 47. So, um, you know, Western League Park, uh, for what I've seen, well, of course, that was, they had the, what they claimed at the time was the first night game in minor league baseball. It turned out to be the second, but it was the first nationally broadcast minor league baseball game uh, early in May of uh, 1930. That's when that that was, um, uh, according to lore, uh, it was partially broadcast uh, on NBC. God, right. I'd love, love to get some cinescope, right. cinescope scope of that. But yeah, the last half of the game, the game didn't start till late 15, so they could pick up the last half uh, on NBC on the national radio network. Is there any is there any uh, footage of that that you know of? I don't know. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, that'd be great to see any of that. I've seen still pictures of the first night game, but I haven't seen any moving pictures or video of it or whatever they had back then. All right. So this is at the okay. what was then known as Western League Park. But I, I also have, to, I, Park, I also have yeah. to ask you, though, by 1930, there was something. OK, I, I, explain this to me. I tried to figure it out from what you wrote and some other stuff that I looked at. But it looks to me like so the boosters ended their run in 1924 and then according to what i've what i've seen here there they were almost like, like two branches were there two teams after that in 1925 no it was the demons then i believe okay but but there were what's this thing called the bruins were they they were uh, well, no the bruins came along in 47 when they became affiliated with the chicago cubs since of course since the cubs are also called the Bruins. They named them the Bruins to show that they were affiliated with Chicago. All right, very fair enough. So the Demons then were 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 the team until from right, twenty five to, to thirty five. So they were the ones that were part yeah. of this. We think maybe probably not first ever sort of lit game and on broadcast television. No, the, the first game lit game was in uh, Kansas. Uh, like two days before this one here, and but and a lot of people up here still don't know that they just assume this was the first night game, but no, it was the second. But it was. I've seen more than one source confirm that. Yeah, it was picked up by NBC here, so Des Moines does have that honor. All right, what's this? Royal Retros. All right, longtime fans of this show may remember a little site that we used to promote the heck out of called 503 Sports. Well, not only are they still around, they are now known as Royal Retros. RoyalRetros.com, the king of throwbacks. And like the name implies, the highest quality jerseys and hats and apparel and all kinds of stuff related to various teams and leagues and situations that we love to obsess about here on this show. And I'm talking about getting jerseys with your name and number on the back of them, customized to your liking for the WHA or or old NHL hockey teams that may not exist anymore. Uh, Perhaps it's a federal league team from way back or a Negro league team. 
maybe you're just enamored with the various football leagues of the past, like the Arena League or the All-American Football Conference or the original UFL, United Football League. Yes, you can get all of those teams uh, in all kinds of colors, away jerseys, home jerseys. You want to put your name on them. You want to make sure you got the official patch on the side. All of those things and more at RoyalRetros.com. And I'm not kidding, friends. You go there. You want to find that Cleveland Barons jersey to wear and show. Hey, you're maybe a Colorado Avalanche uh, fan and you want to represent the Quebec Nordiques from where they came uh, in the arena to show your heritage and your love and knowledge of the history of that franchise, you can do that and more. And I'm talking across football and basketball and baseball and hockey and you name it, all kinds of great stuff for you to find and buy and purchase and wear proudly from Royal Retros. That's RoyalRetros.com. And of course, we have a promo code for you. We want to save you money from all these great things. Uh, and here's that code. It's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, promo code SEATS for all of your purchases at RoyalRetros.com. Check them out. You'll be glad you did. We love them. And our friend Destin Alameda there out in Portland, Oregon, we appreciate his and their sponsorship of this show. And now back to our conversation. So describe then the, the, the demons who who look like they were kind of about uh, pretty as consistent a team as, as you had in Des Moines there. From uh, they were in Class A from from uh, what nineteen twenty five yeah. to thirty seven or so, and then yeah. Yeah. and then they came back as a Class B team in fifty nine to sixty one. Um, yeah, in the three I league. So what is this three I league? That's a, a question that I I had. Uh, Illinois. Indiana and Iowa, is that it? Right, right. Well, that, that was a fairly famous league for that level. I think it, it went defunct in 61, but uh, yeah, I think the Carolina, my memory, but there were teams like, I think Kokomo, Indiana was in it. Uh, Quincy, Illinois was in it, I'm pretty sure. Quincy used to be the Chicago Cubs farm team. Uh, places, you know, like that. Uh, Clinton was in it, Burlington, uh, in smaller cities in the Midwest in those three states, you know. And, and tell me the, that, that's obviously, uh, that was a step up though from the Western League, which was class A denoted, right? So I'm guessing there was well, class, class B would have been one below, I believe. Got it. Yeah. One, one below. Yeah. But so unfortunately, this, Des Moines went down a level, but at least they had baseball. Okay, but but at this point, though, there was also the beginnings of some affiliation, right, with major major league teams. Right, I know there was that starting in starting in forty seven. Uh, well, of course, the Dodgers, the Cardinals, were responsible branch rookie for you know having all these farm teams. He really brought in the farm system. And, uh, you know, I've, I've done comparisons like the Yankees, and especially the Cardinals, the Dodgers. Back then they had 20 farm teams to maybe eight for the Cubs or most franchises. And no wonder the Dodgers and Cardinals were so good because, you know, they had uh, 20 farm teams times 25 players is 500 players trying to get to 25 spots in the major league team. So, 
talk about cutthroat competition. That's crazy. Um, give me um, also some idea of some of these um, some of these players uh, around this time. I, I I think the the quote on your your the title of your book is in reference to one of them, right? Pug Griffin. Pug Griffin. He was a uh, he was earlier on. I think from the even before nineteen hundred. I think he was an infielder. Fire uh, Fireball refers to Fireball Bradley. He was a pitcher with the Negro Leagues team that uh, appeared here in Des Moines. And until the uh, Society for American Baseball Research Convention in Chicago last summer, I didn't realize that there were so many Negro Leagues games played in Des Moines. So I, I did a search on newspapers.com and looked up all those Negro League games that I could find that were played in Des Moines at this uh, Western League Park. Kansas City Monarchs played a lot here. Uh, Indianapolis, Chicago, American Giants played here. Cincinnati played here. St. Louis played here. Their Negro League teams. It was amazing. Buck O'Neill, the great Buck O'Neill, who found Lou Brock and several George Altman and several other Cubs. Uh, even coached for him and even managed one game, I think, for the Cubs when the manager got thrown out. Um, he played here, so a lot of great uh, black ball players played here too. Any uh, any sense of uh, the were, were they all playing at this same park, or were there different places where these two? T- I mean, with it was sadly what, was there segregation of of the play as well, or were they both sharing the park? Or, or... no, they, they they played at this park, Western League Park. Uh, Gene Baker. Played. He was the first African-American or black to play with the Des Moines team. That was 1950. He had been with the AAA team in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, but then he got sent down here. And he played in about 49 games, and then he did real well here. And then he, they brought him, they took him up to L.A., Los Angeles, and the Cubs had this other AAA team out in Los Angeles. But he was here for 49 games, did real well. And by all accounts, he was accepted pretty well. There's only one place on the road where he had to stay in a, another motel. I think that was Wichita. Maybe uh, he had to stay. He couldn't stay with the white teammates. He had to stay someplace else. But by and large, he had, he had, he lived, he, he did okay here. And people seemed to respect him. Tell me a bit more about uh, uh, J.L. Wilkinson because uh, he's a it was an Iowa native, um, oh, yeah. going to Iowa, up right. northern Iowa, and but uh, obviously I think a lot of people remember him and his uh, his exploits with the Kansas City Monarchs that you that you mentioned. Right. But there was also this before then. There was this. Tell me about this team. It was called All Nations. It was sort of like a right. like a Harlem Globetrotters almost a, a traveling team. Well, that's that's the team that became the Monarchs in Kansas City. Yeah, so the first uh, All Nations game team was game was played on Sunday, May fifth, nineteen twelve, against the local Moose Lodge squad. Oh, those dreaded yeah. moose! They uh, they 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 yeah. usually uh, they were they were feared at that time. I'm sure. 
But his team, and the reason they were called the Yellow Nations was it included Blacks, Native Americans, Mexicans, and other nationalities, which, of course, well, the fact that it included Blacks, that was, you know, nobody at that time in the major leagues had Black ball players. The All Nations won three to nothing in seven innings. And then, uh, well, in 1913, they finished uh, 119 wins, 17 losses, and two ties. So, so they went around neighboring states. You know, they played. They were they were a barnstorming team primarily, but it was based in Des Moines. The last game here was uh, September nineteenth, nineteen fifteen. They played the Chicago Union Giants, and the uh, Wilkinson's team lost six to one. And then after the fifteen season, he moved it team to uh, Kansas City and they renamed it the Monarchs and of course the Monarchs had a heck of a history uh, you know they had such players as Jackie Robinson, Ernie Banks, Elston Howard, Gene Baker and their manager at one point was Buck O'Neill so yeah, I, look, I, I, I think that's one of the, the biggest sort of stories that really has not uh, and obviously the stuff that you've written Sort of helps unearth that stuff, but I mean, I, I without the All Nations and and Des Moines and you know you you wouldn't have this sort of Kansas City Negro League success story. Uh, heck, the 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 Negro League uh, Museum Hall of Fame is is based in Kansas City, based off of that. Uh, right. So it's just it's it's ironic and and but important to remember, right? That Des Moines without Des Moines, you wouldn't have right. a whole bunch of that story. Well, what makes it even more important and interesting that this Wilkinson was white. You know, he, he wasn't black. He was a white guy. He was probably the only white owner in the Negro Leagues for years. I'm not sure there ever was another white owner. But obviously, he was very forward-thinking and having all these nationalities on his baseball team when nobody else in the major league level was doing that. Yeah. Pretty phenomenal. No, it's phenomenal. And it's it's a it's again, it tells you that, you know, uh, you go back uh, in time that uh, the the beginnings of the professional game in this country, right, uh, was not necessarily domiciled in big urban areas like Boston and New York or Chicago. Right. You had smaller cities around the northeast and the central part of the country that were were innovating, uh, innovating the game, uh, frankly, almost uh, potentially as a. Uh, as equal to in terms of uh, the way they set up and barnstorm and, and made money, if you will, as as those big guys. Yeah, of course, the Negro League teams, they did use light. They, uh, It's interesting. They would carry the lights around with them. They were portable lights, so they did plan their lights. I don't know how sure how good the lights were, but they did use portable lighting because they carried their lights around with them. A lot of innovation there, and sadly, uh, not a lot of it uh, recognized until later in time. And and we go back, and we still learn more things about the Negro Leagues that uh, probably have yet to yet to be unearthed. All right, so let me let's uh, give me a sense though of so we've kind of gotten to about sort of wartime, I guess, or so when it comes to Des Moines and, and professional baseball. But you did mention there was a period of time when Des Moines did not have minor league baseball. Can you explain that, that, uh, that 
that dark period uh, and then its renaissance when it sort of came back to life. Well, I think from 38 to 47, of course, that was the Depression years, World War II. Uh, I think the league just disbanded. Uh, there were other leagues that I think disbanded around that time. Um, and the thing about night baseball was that probably that saved, that's credited with saving the minor leagues, or else the minor leagues, a lot of those minor leagues would have folded probably in 1930 when the Depression really started. But uh, but uh, that kept minor league baseball going, you know, five years before the major leagues ever had night games. Uh, so in 47, uh, they, they tried it again. And uh, and this this is when the look, Bruins came, uh, where the, the name of the team, yeah. The local sports editor, Suck Taylor, a very famous guy in his own right, he was nationally known. The Des Moines paper at the time had one of the best sports sections in the whole country of any newspaper. And he was the editor from early 19 teens to the time he died in Florida covering spring training in, in the 60s, I think it was. But uh, uh, he was he was quite a mover and shaker, and he helped get Des Moines back into professional baseball in 47. Describe that, though. That didn't last all that long. I know they were affiliated with the Cubs for most of their life, except for 58 when they were with the Dodgers. Dodgers, uh, 59 through 61 in the uh, 3I League. That folded. (laughs) So from 61 to 69, they were without any team. And this guy, Ray Johnston from Texas, originally from Detroit, Michigan, but he he made his fortune in in Texas. He uh, put a franchise in Des Moines in 69, and uh, he had it till about uh, 79 when a local group bought it to make sure that it didn't go you know, out of town. There was a uh, Johnson had other offers from I know place in Illinois. Forget where it was, Springfield maybe, and another place. But he wanted to keep the, the franchise in Des Moines, so a local group here um, paid six hundred thousand dollars and bought him out. Um, and it's interesting because I got a. Through a pickleball contact, I found the daughter of this guy, King Granquist, and I interviewed her about what it was like to, and she worked for her dad in the, would have been the Iowa Oaks in back in the 1980s, what it was like, what the ball team was like back in the 80s. So that was a good, that was nice to be able to talk to her. All right, let me back up for a second, though. The, um, the So 1947, when the, uh, the Bruins uh, came back, if you will, back to life in, in Des Moines or the, the baseball right. came back to life back in the class. A it was the back in the, in the Western league. Um, interesting uh, 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 footnote though. Uh, this was also the, uh, the birth, I think, I think this is when this stadium was built and, and started was um, the old pioneer Memorial stadium, I guess then uh, recognized right. as uh, uh sec Taylor stadium in, in the years afterwards. Um yeah. So I got to think there had been a lot of excitement in 47 because you had a, you had a brand new stadium and, right. and a team again. Yes. Uh, 
Um, I think they were satisfied with the attendance. Um, uh, I forget how how many had seated. Nothing like today. Today's ballpark seats about ten thousand five hundred. I think back then it was like five thousand. But uh, uh, there were ups and downs depending on how the team did. Uh, being associated with the Cubs, I'm sure helped. Although the Cubs back then were pretty bad too. So. <laughs> well, and obviously they stumbled near sort of the end of the, of the decade in that sense, the, uh, the three I league uh, version um, as the demons until 1961, but that eight year period of time um, from what you could tell, uh, was there any love lost, so to speak? Were, were, there, were there other attempts until 1969 when, when the uh, the Oaks uh, came about? Uh, w- were there any other attempts that you know of for Des Moines to, to still have a team, or, or was the 60s just a lost cause when it came to – because they had a relatively – I don't know how new it was at the time, right? it was 1947, but they had a functioning baseball uh, stadium to, to utilize, but nothing came of it, huh? Yeah, uh, I never found that anybody else tried to get a team in here. I suppose this money was a big issue. Uh, you know, Des Moines always had some wealth, and nothing like the East Coast or West Coast, but uh, it took somebody from outside the three Johnston to pony up enough money to get a franchise back in here in 69. And they were the affiliate of the Oakland A's. All right. So tell tell me about 1969, because this is the team that we kind of, uh, the, the beginnings of the team that we know today is the Iowa Cubs. Um, what, what How was this team sort of brought into, into being? You mentioned uh, it was an affiliate of the Oakland uh, Athletics. Oakland uh, uh, what, what, what do you know about sort of the founding of that team in 1969? And, and why do you think 1969 at that particular time for it? Well, uh, okay. Now, they were in the American Association at this time. Well, the American Association was, you know, looking for new franchises. Uh, That also included Denver. There's Denver again, Indianapolis, Omaha, Oklahoma City, and Tulsa. And Tulsa happened to be managed by Warren Spahn at the time. But... um, it's interesting because even though they didn't have an official approval yet to have a team, Johnston was willing to uh, start a franchise in Des Moines as long as uh, civic groups were willing to sell $100,000 of tickets before the season started in 69. That doesn't sound like a whole lot today, but I guess in 69 that was. But it's also a, a step up. This was the first time they were sure. at the AAA level at the and it was now AAA, right? That's that's a big deal, right? For oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um this Johnson, he had owned the Dallas Fort Worth franchise in the Texas League in the early sixties. He sold that club. He had a, a very well to do travel agency and real estate business in Dallas. He had brought professional baseball back to Toledo in 64. So he'd had, you know, he had a tracker. He had a good track record at the time. And uh, 
he announced, you know, they they got a working agreement with the Oakland A's to provide the players under the proposed lease. The city of Des Moines is going to spend $25,000 to upgrade the ballpark and take care of the facility and the grounds. Uh, Johnson would handle the concessions and pay $10,000 in rent. And the last I heard, the I-Cubs were paying $16,000 a year in rent. So it hasn't gone up too much in 50-some years. It's gone up only 6000 a year in rent. <laughs> My goodness. Well, it's also interesting, too, that the uh, the first decade or so of the um, the Oaks' existence, so 69 to 81 or so, it just seems like they couldn't hold a um, an affiliation. Um, the A's for a bunch of years, and then the White Sox came and went, and the Astros for a season. Yeah. The White Sox came back and stuff, but it didn't stop uh, the uh, the appearance of, of a lot of great talent that went on to some great uh, major league uh, experiences. A couple of names that stuck out to me growing up in the New York area: Bucky Dent, who knew, and Goose Gossage, yeah. two two yeah. big time uh, two big time Yankees players. Did the Vita Blue. I yeah, mean, well, that, that's the biggest name from that era is Vita Blue, yes. <laughs> he still yeah, holds Har- a couple Harold of Baines and, records. Yes. Well, Harold Baines, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Bill McNulty, people remember. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pat Tablet, Tabler. I mean, there, there was uh, some some great names coming through all of that, despite the affiliation dance that, that was going Dean on. Tennis, Manny Trio, George Hendrick, Tony LaRusa played here and managed here. Um. Blue still holds the franchise record for strikeouts in a single game in a season. And that was 53 years ago, and he still holds the records. Well, the reason they changed affiliations so much back then, I believe, was because back then, major league clubs only had like two-year agreements or maybe four-year agreements at most with, with their minor league affiliates, so... If they didn't like the way things were going, they'd pull out and find somebody else. But now I think they have to sign 10-year agreements. And I know the Cubs just signed oh, a year or two ago. They signed another 10-year agreement with the Iowa Cubs. So this will still be an Iowa, a Cub franchise probably until the early 1930s for sure. All right. Well, let's talk about that. Maybe sort of as our our, our uh, end cap here, um, uh, the transition to the Iowa Cubs back in uh, in 1981, 1982. Um, it has been, like you said, affiliated with the uh, the big team in Chicago since that time and has been um, just basically the the major pipeline and, and the the uh, the immediate place where people you know, say coming off the Cubs roster, the Chicago Cubs roster for a rehab or whatever, the Iowa Cubs uh, team is just as probably well known to any Chicago Cubs fan uh, than the than the parent team because uh, the, we always constantly hear players and their doings, uh, quote unquote, down on the farm. Yeah, I've heard of people from the Chicago area, and I can understand that they I'll come here for a weekend to see baseball games because, of course, it's much less expensive than Wrigley Field, which, you know, the Cubs have the highest ticket prices in the major leagues, despite not having a championship team. <laughs> that that rubs people the wrong way. So uh, a lot of people, or a fair number, come from suburban Chicago, Chicago, on the weekends here to see games. I mean, they're seeing pretty good ball still. 
have reduced prices, much reduced. I can get a reserve grandstand seat for 10 bucks here at a ballpark that seats 10,500 and has no bad seats. So compare that to the uh, $40 I spent for a reserve seat at Wrigley Field last summer. It was 50. I used to pay 35 in the 2008-2009. So I'll take the $10 seat here anytime. <laughs> well, no, and you also get a you get a, get an advanced look at uh, what the uh, the team might look like in the years to come and you can impress your mm-hmm. friends with all that all that uh, wisdom and knowledge that you saw that scouting knowledge. Uh, tell me though about the stadium because um uh the um uh aforementioned uh park uh kind of met its demise uh through mother nature back in the early 90s um maybe describe a little bit of the uh the end of sec taylor stadium and and what sort of took its place but i think on the same footprint though right oh yeah it's it's the same location the same spot this park is bigger than the two previous ones um well, I got to the point that the Chicago Cubs, this is back when Dallas Green was the general manager back in the 80s. They even kind of threatened to uh, pull out and go to Oklahoma City if they didn't make some major upgrades to the stadium. And they had a big bond issue referendum here. And uh, fortunately, it passed. And it, they really... Uh, they really made a nice ballpark out of it. And then uh, 1994, I think it was, Principal Park, a principal insurance company uh, gave them $2 million to name the stadium after them, Principal. And that's where you get Principal Park. And so now it's got, you know, it's got lots of skyboxes. I've been in those. They're very nice. Um the seating bowl is nice. There's no, you don't have to sit behind a uh, uh, pole like you do at Wrigley Field. Uh, you, you see a view of the Iowa Capitol out in, across center field. You see the Iowa Capitol. Most seats, you can see the Iowa Capitol out in the distance. At, at night, it's, it's lit up. That's real pretty. You're right at the confluence of these two rivers. So you see the rivers outside. You're close to downtown, so at night you see the lights from downtown. Um, it's just a real nice spot. And a couple of years ago, they came out with a feasibility study to um, make more improvements to the ballpark. And we're talking about millions of dollars over several years to put in more fan amenities, put more stuff outside the ballpark, like another park for kids. Uh, fishing dock, uh, boat launches, uh, a parking garage. There's there's just surface lot parking now. So I don't know if they'll ever be done, but it'd be nice because <laughs> it is about the oldest AAA ballpark in the country now, close to it. Well, it's a quintessential and, and sort of a, a down home sort of Cubs experience, if you will, right? And, exactly. and it's um, exactly. it's the kind of throwback, even the- even though they haven't won a league title since when nineteen ninety three, I think it was nineteen ninety three was the last league championship, and yeah, that was back in the American Association. 
to, to what would, to what would you attribute that? Is it just because the Cubs really don't care about that and they want to, it's truly for the the parent team or and how do the fans feel about well, what's the fan relationship with with the Iowa Cubs? And we'll talk about the new ownership in a, in a minute. Well, of course, at the minor league level, and and the, the Sam Burnaby, who I know pretty well, the president general manager who's been with this franchise for forty one years now. Uh, He's realistic, you know. Uh, their goal as managers of the Iowa Cubs to running the ballpark is to provide a safe, friendly, uh, enjoyable fan experience, not necessarily to have a winning team. I mean, that's out of their control. The Cubs control the players. The Iowa Cubs, you know, the office staff at the ballpark, they don't control the team. Who, who plays, what they get paid. That's all in Chicago. So they're just there to, you know, have a nice ballpark as they can and have a good customer experience. So when fans leave, they're happy, even if the team loses. <laughs> and that that's kind of minor league baseball. Like it or not, that's, you know, Chicago is interested in one thing, and that's developing players and getting them up to Chicago as quick as they can. And if if they have a winning team at the minor league level, you know, that's nice, but that's not the ultimate goal in Chicago. And I think most fans realize that. All right, well, that leads me into my last question, and I've been hinting at it already. But <laughs> So what of what your perspective on the ground and, and, and from your journalistic sort of sensibilities, what, what is your – what are your thoughts about Diamond Baseball Holdings? I, I, at last count, they are now up to, I think it's 28 minor league baseball clubs that they own. And we all know about the realignment that uh, Major League Baseball did with Minor League Baseball about three years ago. Um, how do you feel about that ownership of, of multiple clubs? And what's it like on the ground with the Iowa Cubs in particular that you can discern for good or for worse? Well, from the outside, I don't see any changes really from the outside. Uh, I did an usher for them from 2015 to 2019 and 2022. So when I was doing that, I did get to hear a little more of the scuttlebutt, you know, around the stadium as to what was going on. Uh, I don't get that now because I don't usher down there now. But uh, I have heard through other second, third-hand sources yeah, it's changed. It's, you know, it's a big corporation that owns them now. The previous owners, it was home-owned. Sam Burnaby was one of the owners, along with a couple other, doctor and a lawyer, and a Michael Gardner, who uh, was an editor in the Des Moines Register and the Ames paper, and he was Tom Brokaw's boss at NBC in New York for a while. He was a majority owner of the iCubs. Till they sold it to Endeavor. It was more of a family operation. You know, you'd see Gardner, he'd come to about every game. He'd walk around the uh, ballpark. He would, you know, talk to people. Uh, very friendly. Uh, I don't know that anybody is, uh, from Endeavor is ever here. If they are, I wouldn't know. <laughs> so it's, you know, they probably changed the accounting system somewhat to what to match endeavors so stuff like that that we wouldn't see 
from the outside, but I'm sure it's a, the cultures. I'm sure is a little different because it's not a home-owned, locally-owned team anymore. Do you, do you sense the fans notice any difference, either for better or for worse, or or, or the the product or the uh, the the amenities and all that kind of stuff? It sounds to me like that's kind of as you're hinting at, kind of yeah, experience first, everything else. Right. I, ballpark they keep they did a nice job of keeping it clean uh i was down there after one game uh helping clean up i'm in a community band and that was one fundraiser was go down there after game and clean up uh that gives you a new perspective on ballparks so when you have to clean up all the beer cans and the food throwing away but uh i think the fans still enjoy it uh they still have the promotions, you know, between innings. That hasn't changed. They they still sing the seventh inning stretch. They still have the national anthem before the game. They honor, uh, well, they call it a, a hero honoring like a serviceman or a policeman or fireman before the game. It's, none of that stuff has been taken away. I think they're still going to have a, a naturalization ceremony that the previous ownership started Uh they, yeah, they naturalize about 30 uh, people and become American citizens before a game every year. So stuff like that still goes on. And there's still all the – each night is a special night for something. And they still have the promotion. So from that standpoint, nothing's really changed. Do you worry about the uh, those other clubs that we talked about at the, at the top uh, no longer part of – uh, the Iowa uh, minor league baseball sort of landscape. Um, do you worry about more contraction and and maybe um, losing some of that sort of, I guess, Iowa specialness when it comes to to baseball in the minors? Well, those other two, Clinton and Burlington. I know Burlington has a wooden bat league, summer league, college league. So they, they do have baseball. It's just not professional. It's a summer college league. Um, I don't see any more contraction. I don't see how they could. Each major league team only really has four minor league teams anymore. A, low A, high A, double A, triple A. Where you go back in the 50s, a lot of teams would have two triple A teams, two double A teams. Heck, the Cubs at one time, I think, had 14 minor league teams back in the late 40s or 15. Now That's when you had four. like you had like class D's and class yes. and, yeah, Exactly, exactly. And now you just got the four and maybe a rookie summer league. And then there's some leagues down in the Dominican Republic or, you know, South America, Central America. But I don't see how they could contract anymore. <laughs> Well, I, it does. I, I I do. You do worry, though, I think at least I would, you know, when you see multiple teams owned by and this is a competitive thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. in the International League where the Cubs play now, the Iowa Cubs, I mean, you know, Diamond also owns the Louisville Bats and the Memphis Redbirds and, and the Norfolk Tides and, and you know, and yeah. the, the Gwinnett uh, Suburban uh, Stripers in, in uh, near Atlanta. I mean, Okay, I mean, I, I guess if you own the teams, it's like you, you win either way. But it's also, I don't know, it just and I guess as long as I don't know, what about the competition, right? I mean, to your point, right, that the individual clubs that they're affiliated with are responsible for stocking them and and moving the players back and forth, and then their their salaries and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is, 
they're jointly owned at the at the level that they're playing at. So you, you and you already hinted at some of the the things that would be shared, like the back office and that kind of stuff. It it doesn't stretch logic to think that hmm maybe the competition might be challenged or affected in some way, not necessarily positively, by this common ownership. Yeah, in, a, in an ideal world, uh, I would like to see every team owned by somebody in that area or you, you know, a group of guys. But to the costs now I, are just so prohibitive, I suppose it's basically impossible for anybody locally to come up with the money to own even a minor league team, even at the AAA level. I mean, I don't know what Gardner's group paid, but I'm sure he got – well, I shouldn't speculate, but they had enough money from the sale of the team to give uh, every full-time employee a couple of years ago some money from the sale of the team. And I think the longest-serving employee for the ICUBs got $70,000 from that sale of the team. I mean, Gardner and his group didn't have to do that. They could have kept all the money themselves, but they were so nicely – distributed it to some of the, the you know the office people so and the new owners probably will never do that but all right well not to add on a negative note but how do you feel though about the about the future of the team and and the city and its relationship to baseball do you think it's pretty solid do you think the cubs are are, are there for for the long haul and do you think the the community still embraces them as they have generally in the past I think so. Of course, they got this working dream of Chicago that runs, I think, through the early 30s. So, you know, it's assured for that long. Uh, there's, you know, it's easy to hop on a plane or even a private plane from Chicago and get here. It's not like uh, going to the West Coast or having a team. I mean, the Cubs used to have teams out in Tacoma and Salt Lake City, places like that. It's, I don't know why, but they did. Uh the attendance is not as good as it was pre-pandemic, and I'm not sure any place has attendance as good as it was pre-pandemic. I think some people are still kind of reluctant to get to uh, the crowd events, even outdoors. The time the Gardner's group owned it, they had 12 years where they drew uh, 500,000 or more, which is kind of the benchmark for minor league baseball. They haven't done that since the pandemic, but I so I don't know that that will ever come back, but they're still drawing 400, 450,000, and you know, you still get decent crowds, and people are excited still. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope that continues because, uh, I, I, you know, cynic that I am, I mean, eight of the 20 teams in the International League in which the Iowa Cubs play are owned by one owner, but okay. I, yeah, I, I hope I that's like the case. Either, but, uh, don't like it either, but. What can you do? Yeah, look, and I don't mean to be the old man yelling at the clouds. I just, it, to me, it just feels like it feels like uh, I look at I. This is also part of the business model for a lot of sports, especially fledgling ones, and maybe maybe yeah. I don't know. Minor league is baseball is necessarily fledgling, but arguably the business model might be. But you know, look at major league soccer, for example. That's it's all. Those are all. That's all centrally owned, and there's there are owner operators, not actual owners of the franchises, right? And a lot of a lot of these newer leagues kind of go with that model to begin with, at least to kind yeah. of stabilize and centralize and then graduate, if you will, to that. But this is this is interesting in that it's going in reverse. Right. Um, 
it's going from mom and pop and 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 the I don't know the love and the I guess the the um the I don't call it naivete but the sort of the essence of of baseball at the minor league level right I think some of that soul will get squeezed out in this centralized business ownership of it now if it if it it's required for survival that's one thing I don't know necessarily if that's the case but we'll see um but look if it keeps the Iowa Cubs in Des Moines for a long period of time and the and the Chicago Cubs benefit and it's a mutually beneficial relationship and it's still 10 bucks to see a game maybe <laughs> there's not so but maybe it's not all bad then yeah, they could have jacked up the ticket prices like twenty. Quiet, or 30 quiet days. now. Wait a minute. Don't give any ideas. <laughs> but they didn't. Well, they. Well, I, see, okay, I think they they haven't, and there's a difference in those words. So they I, haven't yet. Let, let's stay in touch and let's hear hear that story because yeah. I hope that is the case that it's still maintained that way. But um, I, I don't so know. Too. I you know I look at private equity and I see, I see trail. I see trouble ahead. But that's just me. I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong, too. Okay, thank you to Steve. And uh, only here will you learn about things like the Undertakers of 1903 playing their game of baseball in Des Moines. And uh, that's why we love to stand out in all of your various podcast choices by... uh, it's uh, exclusive information such as that. Uh, the book, again, is called Pug Fireball and Company, 116 Years of Professional Baseball in Des Moines, Iowa. Its author was our guest this week, Steve Dunn. You can get a copy of it wherever you find books. Of course, your local bookseller, uh, your independent bookseller, go for it there. But uh, if you'd like the convenient way to do it, by all means, please go to our website at Good Seats. Still available. Just search up this episode number 335 with our new pal Steve Dunn, and you'll find a couple of convenient links there, and you will be whisked away to Amazon for a few uh, easy clicks to uh, get said book. And of course, we'll get some referral love when you do that. We appreciate that. Um, let's see some promotional stuff. The uh, website is called Pug Fireball and Company. It's all one word Pug, P U G, Fireball. Two L's and A and D company, pugfireballandcompany.com. That's where Steve's blog is, all the information about the book and some uh, uh, various ephemera from uh, his collection that uh, didn't make the book, etc. And uh, we also encourage you, if you happen to be in the area in the next couple of weeks, depending on when you're listening to this, February 17th, you can meet and greet Steve Dunn and get a copy of this book for yourself and get a signed autographed. I think it's the same thing. Autographed copy. There you go. Uh, of this book at the Barnes & Noble in West Des Moines. And that's located in the Jordan Creek Town Center. Uh, and that's on the 17th again of February from 4 to 6 p.m. Tell him we sent you. And uh, tell your friends that we sent you. Please, by all means, uh, follow us, subscribe to us, have your friends do the same thing. Hey, and God forbid, rate and review this sh- uh, this show, too. Um you may not like every episode, but uh, if you listen long enough, you're probably going to stumble on something you do like. And uh, that's our intent here on this show. GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. You'll see and be able to stream all of our various episodes of the past. But the best way, of course, to make sure that you don't miss a thing is to subscribe uh, and uh, follow us wherever you get your podcast so that you get them each and every week. You can uh, send us email at hello at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. And you follow us on social if you'd like to. 
Uh, on uh, on the X, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, on the Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Also on the threads, uh, you will find us at Good Seats Still Available as well. Um, on uh, Facebook, yeah, we're there too. Um, and who knows, maybe some other places someday, some way. Uh, I think you uh, already know our great producer and engineer type. Uh, the editor-in-chief, if you will, of this show. His name is Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you, kind sir, for all of your knob twiddling this week, as always. And, of course, we can't do this without you, our fun and uh, frivolous. Not frivolous. No, you're, you're wonderful. Uh, you're hardly frivolous. We can't take you for granted, for sure. Listener base out there. We appreciate it more and more each and every week. Tell your friends, and they'll tell two friends, and so on and so on. We appreciate that, too, uh, for your support of this show. Until next week... Take care of yourselves, and we will see you next week. Bye.